0: Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect, and when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Carolyn Starrow, CEO of Flatiron Health. Flatiron is a world leader in transforming patients' real-life experiences into knowledge to help accelerate improvements in cancer care and treatment. Carolyn is a passionate champion for mindfulness and inclusion in the workplace and beyond, and is deeply committed to advancing global health and environmental sustainability. Today, we're gonna discuss Carolyn's journey to being CEO of Flatiron Health and the multidimensional role of leaders. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Firstly, how are you? And I would absolutely be fascinated to hear a bit of a a bird's eye, top-end view of your journey to CEO at Flatiron Health today.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me and for that really kind introduction. So journey to Flatiron. Uh, I've been at Flatiron for a little over six years now. And and so maybe one of the the parts that's somewhat interesting about my story is I grew up with this company over the the last six years and then stepped into the CEO role a little over a year ago when our two co-founders moved on. Uh, before Flatiron, um actually started my career and spent most of my career in data and technology working at enterprise uh, tech companies. I uh, started in, in marketing and product management at a company that was working to build the, the first generation of the internet uh, back in the first internet bubble. And then got my grad uh, graduate degree, got an MBA, spent five years in strategy consulting five years um, growing another kind of uh, data and predictive analytics startup here in New York, and then ultimately took a step back and and just thought about what really motivates me and and gets me fired up to come into work and decided I, I wanted to be able to take everything I'd learned about data and technology and apply it to a problem that felt really meaningfully important to me. And um, for so many of us at, at Flatiron, cancer is one that touches us very personally. And, and so that was an opportunity. I just, I couldn't pass up. And that led me to to come to Flatiron and, and here we are.
0: Even before I begin, there's about thirty-eight questions that I want to <laughs> ask straight off the bat. But like, because there's so many interesting things. But with us as a business, we work in technology and life sciences, and have businesses that work across both sectors. Is always a, a fascinating thing because I think there are so many different dynamics with working in a business such as flat iron. I, I can't wait to get sucked into these bits and pieces. I mean, one of the things that I my team introduced was the representing flat iron at the president's announcement on the next phase of the cancer moonshot. Oh, tell me how that feels to be involved in it. It must be something pretty special.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really quite incredible. I, so I grew up on the West Coast uh, in, in a town a, an hour south of San Francisco. And the last time I'd been to the White House was, I think, my eighth grade class trip to D.C. So it had been quite a while. And as President Biden was relaunching the focus on the cancer moonshot, which he had actually started in his, his uh, first administration under Obama, I got an email out of the blue one day just saying, hey, do you want to come to this announcement at the White House? And it, I, I swear, it actually looked like an evite invitation, except it was from President uh, Joe Biden and, and Dr. Jill Biden, who were inviting me to the White House. So that in and of itself was just like, OK, this is kind of intimidating and incredibly um, awesome. At the same time, getting there, I think what was more powerful for me was seeing how well aligned Flatiron's mission and vision is to the priorities and uh, the goals that that the president has outlined in the cancer moonshot. And I think, you know, he he says something that I think is really powerful, which is cancer is one of the most bipartisan issues that, that we can think about. I think Really making a dent and, and the goal that he's outlined is um, reducing cancer mortality, the cancer death rate by 50% over the next 25 years. Like, I think that's something we can all rally around and no one player is going to, is going to change that. We work in this complex ecosystem and I think to really make a difference and make a dent and achieve those goals, which, which I really believe our insight. It's going to take us all coming together and, and being a part of the solution. And so it was really inspiring to, to see that.
0: I think this is, a, this is a great place to start, actually, um, because the, the whole podcast is about leadership. And one of the things that I just adored, there was the most wonderful BBC World Service podcast called 13 Minutes to the Moon, where JFK at the beginning of the 60s says, by the end of the decade, famously, we're going to put a man on the moon. And everyone went, are you <laughs> are you crazy, man? You know, that kind of vibe. Um and guess what? They made it happen. And, and President Biden, 50% reduction. I mean, that would for some people be like, surely no chance there. But everyone has got a different interpretation of what leadership means. But ultimately, sometimes, I think it's one of those fa- famously coined phrases of a hairy, big, audacious goal, whatever it's called, is one of the things that leaders should do. But, Carolyn, like, without me putting words in your mouth, <laughs> What are the examples of leadership that you've that you've always liked, aspired to be, resonated with? And, and what do you regard as excellent leadership looking like? Nice no, easy one to start there.
1: No, I think it's a, <laughs> it's a great one. I mean, it's it's a topic I've, I've thought a lot about, especially over the last year as I'm kind of leading at this next level in, in a different way than I have in my career to date. So um, I think four things really come to mind. So the first is just setting the direction and where are we going together? And I think that's... You know, to use your example, that's something Biden did incredibly well with the cancer moonshot, you know, 25, uh, sorry, 50 percent reduction in cancer mortality over the next 25 years. It's clear. Um, and I think nothing, nothing works as a leader if we're not all marching in the same direction and, and understanding where we're going together. So, that you know, that that's kind of the starting point. I, I think the next piece for me is really about cultivating clarity, no matter how good the direction or the vision is there are, you know, so many different questions that we grapple with every day around what's the best way to pursue that vision and how do we make trade-offs and how do we prioritize? And so I think really ensuring there's a strong understanding and clear accountabilities and understanding of who's doing what, who's tackling which different pieces and how does it all fit together is is the next piece, at at least at kind of the scale that we're operating at now. And then from a a personal perspective, there are kind of two qualities that I, I really think about a lot that really matter to me. One is, candor. It's just like, I, I really want to be known as someone who, who's, you know, tells it like it is. And, you know, you're going to get the same, you know, feedback from me, no no matter what role you play in the company. Like I want to be authentic and consistent. And also um, I'm a, I'm a big student of, and believer as, as I think your podcast is as well, but you know, we can't learn if we don't get the feedback, we can't learn if we, if we aren't having honest conversations with one another. And then I think lastly, and you know this is just a personal belief, being in it for others, not not in it for yourself. I think I've always when I think to the leaders that I most admire, I remember one was really shaping for me I was I was working for a more senior product manager as I was starting my career and he would make it a point to use the same process that I needed to use and show me that he could do the work as well. and you know I just it was so clear to me that you know he was fighting for our collective success, not for his you know his um, recognition and and I think that matters a lot when it comes to really inspiring people and building teams that that can deliver outsized results.
0: Absolutely, but I mean, as, as our business ethos is empowering people to succeed, Carolyn. So in relation to that last point, yeah, quite a lot of nodding come from you on that particular. But do you know what? that's a phrase that I'm loving? Yeah. Fighting for collective success. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard it phrased that way before. I found myself nodding even more during that part, and I like that a lot. Actually, be. uh Taking that bit away myself and using it within our leadership teams to make sure we're doing exactly that. But yeah. I don't know if you I don't know if you do much reading on the business front, Caroline. I've had a real mixture of guests over the last eighteen months, some of which say, "No, no, when I'm not doing my crazy amount of hours a week, I'm either getting into a novel or I'm doing everything but reading about business." But there was a, a great um, a great book by someone called Kim Scott who would worked at Facebook and Google or whatever, uh, called Radical Candor, and and I bought every single one of my leaders in our last offsite a, a version of that and say, "Read this because." actually to care about the people that you're working with, to really empower them to develop them. Sometimes you're going to need to give some pretty straight-talking feedback. You can't always dance around the houses. You're going to say it how it is, but if it's done authentically and from a place where you're putting your arm around them and saying this is how we're going to get better at it – guess what it's never going to have the kind of yeah, impact that some people fear it might so absolutely
1: i couldn't agree more and just her her point that feedback is truly a gift without that awareness if we if we if we walk around with these blind spots and you know i I've, I've always been a big proponent of the fact that feedback is is right no matter what it is it's a perception it's a perception of how you are being received by the person who is sharing that feedback with you and so regardless of whether you agree with it or whether, you know, it's, it's actually aligned with how I think I am showing up, like that is a gift. And if we aren't getting it, it there's, you know, we're not going to grow.
0: I know that my own team were very inspired looking at your journey, Carolyn, and your background. It was great that you gave a bit of a summary of how you've got into this role. But as a guy that's gone from being a co-founder and then getting into this job 20 months ago myself, which is whoa. I uh, I knew it would be full on. I didn't quite know how challenging it would be. And I've kind of called myself, a. I agree with your one of your four points, it was direction. I kind of wrote down next to it. I've almost seen myself as like chief aligning officer because it's really easy for everyone to be kind of fractioned off in bits and pieces. And actually the, the, the harmonious bringing together of people to, to share in a collective aim, I I've, I've found it to be a very interesting uh, dynamic, but Please, the journey bit is the bit I love to hear about. You've, you've the, the roles you've done before have really been across quite a, you know the, the consulting route as you mentioned, being in a product space at one time, VP of areas such as business operations and bits and pieces like that, and then to end up in the CEO job. Talk to me when you started thinking about getting that type of role because it is unique, it can be lonely, and it is a it it, it comes with brilliant positives and certainly some stuff that's challenging. When did you start thinking about getting into that position or has it always been a dream?
1: You know, to be totally candid, I haven't aspired to be a CEO. That wasn't actually what I thought I was going for. I was really happy at Flatiron. I was running um, kind of one half of our business. We we work with uh, cancer centers across the, the U.S., predominantly historically, and then with uh, large pharma customers to help learn from uh, data and evidence that we curate through through our partnerships with cancer centers, and so I'd spent most of my time at Flatiron running uh, running the business line that that supports our software and services and, and partnerships with the practices. And you know what motivated me up until this point was always delivering results and building a team that I wanted to do that awesome work with and, and developing them and and feeling. <laughs> excited to come in and do the work with them and and with our customers and so I was I was really quite happy running my business I had a ton of autonomy I was you know in a general manager role and and I really loved it so when I got the opportunity to take on the CEO role I actually you know, I ask myself the question of, is this actually what I want? You know, am, am I the right person to do this? Is this the, the way that I can best give back to the company? And, it, and it's been a really interesting evolution over the last year as I've, I've really settled into it.
0: Now, Carolyn, we've known each other for not that long, but the reality is already, I am a big fan of your understated, very kind of like, oh yeah, you're slightly blase. And this ended up happening, I guess, like you guys got taken over by Roche, the absolute giant within the, within the pharmaceutical life sciences space. So knowing a little bit about the world like I do, these type of businesses don't take on someone, oh, if I guess they might be the right person for the job. That doesn't happen. They would have gone through an extremely vigorous process of thinking, deciding who the hell they wanted in this extremely pivotal role. How how was that whole process from not having ever dreamed or thought about really going into CEOship to them being having conversations around what this would look like? Were were there any parts of the process that you were surprised by, or any learns on that particular journey yeah. that kind of oh that was a that was something I was yeah. expecting?
1: Well, yeah. So we did do a pretty broad external search, and, and I think that's smart for any really important role. And, and I would do this this with my team as well. I think it's smart to understand what talent exists and and who's in the market and and. What the option set looks like, and and so I think we did that, and I was kind of tangentially involved in, in the candidates we were thinking about to to lead Flatiron. But, you know, when you get to the end with any any really important leadership hire, you're kind of balancing the expertise and experience and perspective that someone and and kind of change that someone new brings to the mix with, you know, understanding the culture and what's and and the heart and the DNA of the company and what's made us successful to date and you know, I think Roche leadership got to the end of the journey and realized that that's always a trade-off. You're taking on more and more risk when you bring in someone externally. And I think it's a real testament to what Flatiron has achieved and to how thoughtful Roche is and how they're managed. They have a a number of kind of very independent subsidiaries uh, and affiliates for whom, you know, they're they're really not very involved except in these key moments of of leadership and succession planning. And and so, you know, I think it's a testament to um, how thoughtful they are that they saw the power of you know, reinvesting and in, in, in me and and in the leadership team that's kind of been through this all at Flatiron.
0: Love it. I mean, in light of the fact it's the it's the 10-year anniversary of Flatiron Health, I've always really believed that businesses and organizations have chapters to them. And when you get to these kind of seminal birthdays, these anniversaries, it's definitely a good time just to stop and to go right. What is that? We're, what is it that we want to be about, and what does the future direction look like? How do you make sure that you you know you you, you do that stopping and taking stock and setting a strategy in the right direction? How does that look like since you started in the role?
1: I mean, I love that that um, image you talked about about chapters of a company's evolution. We've actually been talking about that a lot, and I think at Flatiron it was kind of our days as a startup until the acquisition, which was now a little over four years ago, and then. You know, we had kind of the three years after the acquisition when we were learning what it meant to operate as Flatiron with, within a, a broader entity. And, and then um, my last year we, t- we talk about as Flatiron 3.0, if you will with kind of a big leadership change. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about this, this, this week, actually, we're um, having a, a big celebration of 10 years of Flatiron and we're bringing the entire company back to New York and we're, we're able to do our first big in-person celebration, which is something I've been craving for, for a while, but COVID yeah. pandemic aside, we all know how that has gone. So we're doing a lot of reflecting on exactly this question. Right. And it's been, you know, such a wonderful honor for me to get to sit in this seat. If I, if I look back over the last decade, you know, Flatiron, really created this whole new category of real-world evidence in oncology. And, and I think we helped the world see the possibilities of, of learning from real-life stories from real patients. And the the founding um, uh, observation for Flatiron was just that so much of what we know about how to treat patients with cancer really comes from only 4 or 5% of patients who can enroll in clinical trials. And, you know, that's just that's not good enough because those patients aren't representative. They don't look like all the patients who will then experience those medicines. It's slow, it's inefficient, it's expensive. And so, you know, in our first decade, we've had some really huge wins. Um, An example we love to talk about, Pfizer used our evidence to support the FDA's approval of iBrands, which is a drug that was originally approved for women with breast cancer, but they expanded the label because they saw it was safe and effective for men with breast cancer. And you know you don't we don't talk about men who get breast cancer all that often it's a population that's really too small to study in a, in a meaningful way with a randomized clinical trial so that's the kind of you know potential that we saw and i think it's really exciting to reflect back on how far we've come and then thinking about moving forward what what gets me so excited is just we've really only just begun our, our aspiration is really to be a change agent in partnership with you know stakeholders and and our customers across the industry to take the vision much further, you know, the opportunity now to operate on a much larger scale and to, and to really transform the infrastructure of cancer care and research. And, you know, so so our aspiration there is, is using the technology we build, the science uh, to really close the gap between research and care.
0: The thing that I've noticed just in our own chapters, but also the amount of conversations with some seriously interesting and talented leaders that I've had, Uh, the blessing of conversations with over the last 18 months is that I know that with a business that goes, that has gone through the scale and the impact that Flatiron has, keeping the alignment and the culture strong can be a challenge. I'm sure there'll be leaders listening that go, I'd be really interested to hear from Carolyn of the key methodologies or the key things that she does and her leadership team do as a collective to make sure that there's that, that that's as low risk as possible. Nothing's ever completely non-risk, but uh, look, to keeping that alignment, keeping that culture strong can be tough the bigger you get. Talk to me how you go about that.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the things that I've, I've spent the most time on. Um, and it's been a year of a lot of change for Flatiron. We've had, you know, a bunch of leadership transitions that were planned and expected. We've also had, you know, people who've been at Flatiron for a really long time, who have thought about, you know, what's their next chapter and want to be at startups. And so I feel really proud that so many Flatiron alumni now have launched their own companies and are are building new things around the world, right? But culture is is challenging during a period like this, even more challenging when we're also learning to adjust to working in a hybrid fashion and figuring out, you know, different tactics. Um, You know, I really think it comes back to, we we have um, 10 values that we defined as a collective company. Um, and organically, they, they came, we did this exercise, I, I think, at the end of 2018, early 2019, to, to revisit our values as we've grown and scaled. And I think they really, you know, we painted them on the walls. They're part of our interview rubric. We think about them when we think about performance reviews. And I think, you know, as that, that is one thing that's really worked for us People are grounded in, in those values, and what that means for how we show up, and and how we behave, and how we make decisions. And then I also think it is about it's it's about role modeling behaviors. What are the incentives we put in place? Who do we promote? How does the leadership team show up? Does the leadership team kind of do, do we have? Are we creating role models that people want to um, can see themselves in, and and you know see uh, want to emulate and. Yeah, I think culture comes through the way we show up, the interactions we have, uh, and and what's rewarded. And so we've just really been trying to think about how do we infuse that through every step of the organization.
0: I, I I love so many of those points. And one of the things that we realized that with with our own values that we came up with, you know, we've we've only got four. You know, improve, innovate, inspire, and include. And like as long as those things. Uh, at the heart of what we do, we kind of feel like we're going to have an environment that allows our people to be empowered, empower society, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I don't think values can be, because, you know, businesses go through and do these good exercises and go off site and like, what, what do we want to be about? But if that isn't running through the heart of everything that you do from learning and development to onboarding to you know exit interviews and the exit process like every single thing needs to be derived from that it needs to sing it from the hill stops as you say walls and stuff are great but if it's not through every facet of the business I think these these are things that are easily just oh what are they again I don't even know and I think you know it, it's always an interesting part of the CEO's job to go are we actually living and breathing our core values as much as we could be or should be and is there any more we can do but also the, the, the thing that jumped out from that Karen is like it's the revisiting part. It's recognizing when the different chapters are and going, who are the group of people that we need to do some reflection time looking at? Because ultimately, things will change and develop sometimes as a business, for for hopefully generally for, for better, but sometimes for worse, unless there's that taking stock and just kind of stepping back and looking at things. I think that's really interesting. And I don't know if you've seen it so far in your leadership career, but I know it from, again, primarily being guilty of it myself. I've recognized that whatever I'm bad at, guess what? the people below me are going to model that. So I think yeah. it's been the first real time since I took this job in like, you know, the last 18 months where you're like, wowzer, you've got to be thinking about what do you want people to be demonstrating below you and really knowing that whatever you're doing, people are like, Oh cool. Well, that's what we'll be doing. there like, no, no, no. <laughs> and actually part of my development as a leader, I've got a big birthday, sadly later this year. Um, but part of that, that thing is kind of getting the awareness. And I'd be really interested to, to ask you because Personal development methodologies, right? This is the exact point of having a conversation with with people like you and people that have done such interesting things. Because the reality is, I I realised for myself that I've I got too late to the party with some personal methodologies that have been, you know, the mentoring, executive coaching. That since I've started working with them um, and working with people completely unrelated to my sector, it it gives you such a different, broad horizon of, of of um. Of, of, of awareness about your own leadership. And I'd be fascinated to hear if there's been any one, two, handful of methodologies that you've gone through with your own personal development over the years, Carolyn, that have been the most effective.
1: I, I just I couldn't agree more. I, I think building awareness has been the most important thing. And some of that comes from feedback, but some of that is just a personal commitment to actually want to look at some things that, you know, are maybe. Harder to to grapple with, I, and I and I personally went through this journey. You know, and, I don't know, probably ten or fifteen years ago, I, I was hitting this. I was feeling really stuck it, at, in my career and in getting to the next level because I kept using the same tactics that had gotten me to where I was. And I was, you know, objectively getting promoted and quite successful, but you know, there was a certain point at which you know the tactic of like doing the next thing and working harder and getting you know achieving the next result just wasn't the thing that was going to make me successful at the next level. And so I you know, I I got frustrated for a while, but then I I started, it was right around the time of the Kim Scott radical candor, you know, push. and, And I just started realizing that rather than be scared of the feedback or scared of that process and that journey, that it takes building awareness. It takes pattern recognition in order to then be intentional about choosing a different behavior and choosing that you want to show up differently. And so like, I've done um, programs. There's a program I did, which um, has been life changing for me called the Hoffman process, where you go away and you spend like a whole seven days, like 12 hours a day doing that radical self inquiry. And, you know, for me, I would worked with coaches and therapists and, you know, I've, I've been on this journey for a while. But that process of really immersing myself to do that, that really important deep work on myself was, the, was just a huge unlock for me. And then I just try to make that a part of how I show up with my team and in all parts, like feedback really is a gift. And so the more I can understand what's working and what's not, the more I can make a choice if I want to keep doing it one way or start to do things differently. Seven whole days, 12 hours a
0: day. Wow, that must have been tend
1: So I, I like having a lot of balls in the air at the same time. And I think one of the things I'm really working on is to try to be more intentional in how I focus and spend my time. Because as as a learning of my first year as CEO, is I could uh, you know if, if I'm not deeply intentional on what is the most important thing I personally need to be working on, won't be making the kind of impact I could.
0: Caroline, I think that's absolutely awesome, um, and and yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. From the sense of if it's just another meeting, like we all recognize that for something to actually change, to change a habit requires an immense amount of effort, concentration, awareness. And, and fundamentally, I, I love the, the phrase of routine sets you free. You're gonna to need to amend your entire routine to be able to have the actual impact that you want it to have. And as you say, just another meeting as part of a mega day, are you really gonna stop and reflect and kind of get as part of something? Whereas seven days of intensity, wow, I can't wait to look into this. Um, one of the other things that I was fascinated to ask you about um uh, today was gonna to be um that broader community lens, how how businesses like Flat Iron juggle the importance of developing what you're doing in this vital, vital area, which affects so many people's lives, as we know, and and also getting out in a community. How does Flat Iron go about that, and are there any future plans on that kind of impact?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of our greatest Gifts or strengths, if you will, is that our mission in and of itself is so powerful for all of the people who come to Flatirons. So our mission is to uh, improve and extend lives by learning from the experience of every uh, patient with cancer, and you know that that it's a really powerful rallying cry because that in and of itself uh, connects us to our the, our communities and the communities that we operate within. And and what's unique about how we approach that mission is that. We have this whole network of sites that use our technology and use our services to make decisions about how to take care of cancer patients. And, you know, we're kind of foundational to those choices that are made on an ongoing basis um, by the care teams. And and then at the same time, you know, we are able to then build new insights from those experiences that might not otherwise be seen. And, you know, think about what does that mean? How do we we bring those back? A really exciting recent example of, of giving back ASCO, which is a big conference that happens every year where we talk about all the, the new clinical trials that have read out, and new medicines and new therapies. There were a couple of really exciting deliveries this year, one of which is a, a trial that uh, will uh, extend life and overall survival for roughly 30% of women with breast cancer that relies on an understanding of a new targeted biomarker that is being looked at differently, her, her two um, status in women. And, you know, we were able to take that decision, which came out last weekend at ASCO, and integrate that through the clinical treatment decision support uh, in, in our technology kind of overnight so that patients can, you know, doctors can now see, oh, there was this new standard of care released, and I should consider this for my breast cancer patient. And so, you know, I think the thing that's powerful is we, we get the opportunity to get back infused in just the core of what we do. And then not to be too overly worried, the other place we're really leaning into is health equity and disparities. And I think the incredibly important, important thing about our mission and vision is that we are looking at a much broader set of patients and trying to understand what's happening in real practice, not just in in you know, really uh, pristine clinical trial settings. And that tells us where the disparities exist. It tells us what inter- interventions are going to be necessary. And, and so we've built a team uh, of researchers who invest in our in looking at our data to expose uh, those gaps and expose those priorities. And then we can flow that through uh, in partnership with our practices to think about how we can make a difference.
0: Yeah, nice. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, as I mentioned right at the beginning, being sat with techno- the technology business that's going to impact the health of people like the, the creation of the use of the interpretation of structured and unstructured data and how you're going to go about using that effectively I mean <laughs> these are the kind of challenges that you need a serious amount of talent to be able to um, to be able to do that now one of the things that I'm always interested to ask because out of a what's hardest about your job right a uh, question that i ask pretty consistently is that there hasn't been anyone so far that hasn't said finding and attracting the right level of life sciences and technology talent how much of a ta- how much of a challenge for you as a ceo is the finding and attracting of the right talent and have you have you have you found that there's been successful methodologies that you've gone about you know when you do it well
1: yeah, I mean, I probably one of the things I've spent the most time on over my first year has been thinking about shaping the leadership team for this next flat, uh, chapter at Flatiron, and some of that has been about uh, hiring great people into the company, and some of that has been about repositioning leaders who've been with us for a while. But it, you know, I think couldn't agree with you more that um, that's that's probably my my first and and leading priority. Period. In terms of how to find, we're, we're really lucky, actually, at Flatiron. We we tend to have a really, maybe a better chance than most attracting talent because people are inspired by our mission and, and the problem we're solving. And I do think that's really important. One of our core values is solve problems that matter. And, you know, I know I personally uh, am attracted to feeling like I can make an impact. And so I think we have that going in our favor. But I also think one of the things when I think about how to gauge talent, the journey that we're on has been an, an interesting one because... It's a very different leader and um, mindset who wants to work and thrive in an early stage startup than someone who wants to scale a lasting kind of large global business. And so a lot of you know what we've worked through over, over the last year and, and continue to think about is just there's no right or wrong, but I think actually part of it is understanding what stage and what type of problems are most motivating. To me, as a leader, and to the, the leaders that I'm hiring and cultivating, and and I think that really drives a sense of like, is this the right problem to actually target? And and you know, there's a when you think about the right stage of company, and you know, what what gets you most fired up and excited, it's just often a different skill set. You know, so we now have four business units, we operate in four countries across like seven offices with a, a roughly three thousand person workforce the tactics, the priorities, how you spend your time looks very different as a senior leader in our organization than it did when we were 150 people when I joined and, you know, scaling kind of in one way and in one place. Um, and so I think it takes that growth mindset. It takes the kind of ability to inspire and be empathetic and and know that we're kind of in it together versus, you know, someone who's, who's looking to, to do it on their own.
0: One of the things that again, um, uh, if we had much longer, I'd love to ask you the question about, because ultimately it's that well-known phrase about like people don't leave businesses, they leave managers and they leave leaders because they just, they, they don't align with the values that they are as a human being. They don't have a tailored approach to leadership. It's a one touch fits all type of approach, whatever it may be. But it, it'd be interesting, even with a business with doing the wonderful work that you guys are doing, it's like how much do you think the impact of what you do in your role, Carolyn, actually affects the tone and affects the level that people are attracted to work at a business like Flatiron because of course there are many businesses in the life sciences technology space doing some brilliant and fantastic work. Do you, do, do you think that um, the role and, and, and who you are as a CEO actually has an impact in relation to, uh, you know, what you're able to attract talent wise, or do you think it's not, not as impactful?
1: I think ultimately like I'm accountable for the decisions we make, the direction we set and, you know, our success and having the right team to do that. And so, you know that is my core responsibility as a CEO, but I can't do it on my own. There, I think, as as you said, you know, without that stellar uh, leadership team and leaders across the company stepping up, like that's where kind of the day to day happens. And so, I guess I think it's it's not one or the other. It it has to be both. And you know, my job is to build and develop and bring together a team collectively across the organization and create that culture and you know, create the direction that enables everyone to feel like we're having a a big impact and, you know, growing more together by being a part of Flatiron than by going and having a different experience. And I guess that's how I see it.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I absolutely totally agree. I think it'll be a blended approach, right? It's not just going to be on what one YouTube video of the CEO says, it's going to be on the face of how, how their experience is. And, you know, one of the things that we do regularly is make sure we do a quarterly feedback session with anyone starting a business, where we have a cup of tea or a glass of wine, and say, "Hey guys, we want to hear what's going on. How was the first phone call? How was the first time you came into our office? Like how how was it all? And tell me any little minutiae detail that could be just that little bit better, because." Uh, there's a there's a few advocates of just one percent gains, and if you keep making one percent gains, you're going to be you know as uh, a brilliant um, high performance podcast, which is a great one. Karen and if you ever do any listening, um, that, that does a combination of like business people and sports people, and I love learning from all kind of different angles of where people do things well. And I think one percent gains is a, is a lovely little mindset, just to know yeah. that you're making a difference each and every day. A um, couple of questions I want to finish up with: When, when you joined Flatiron, it was 150. And you guys are on your 10-year anniversary and you are now at the scale that you just mentioned there is quite astounding. Can you pinpoint the two or three biggest challenges that you've gone through during that growth? Because I know that our listenership, one of the things that we do, I hopefully do quite well as a partner, talent partner with businesses, is go on that scaling journey with them. Um, And I'd be fascinated to hear from someone that joined at 150 what those biggest challenges have been during your time.
1: I think there are two. The first is just scaling how we work. And doing that at the right point, you know, we're still working to figure out what does it mean to operate across four business units and multiple countries and how do you keep everyone on the same page and how do we communicate clear and consistent integrated goals that work across the company when the reality is the company is doing a lot more things uh, for multiple different customers and audiences. And so finding that right balance of really clear, um, aligned and integrated goals with an appreciation of the the specificity and, you know, all of the important context that comes at the level of any particular business line and, you know, set of customer relationships is, is a journey that we're still working. And then also where to use technology and scale and process and uh, where to use first principles thinking and, you know, unblocking people and trust. Um,
0: uh, oh. And where it gets your attention, because we talk about it a lot. I wish we didn't use this analogy because then all of us are sick of it, I think, by now. But like, it's very easy to have a lot of spinning plates, right? That analogy where like you've got, oh, my goodness, we've got a room full of spinning plates. And yeah. can, we, can we spin all of these plates and actually make an impact at once? Have there got to be things that are on the priority list? And I guess getting people together, getting valuable input. And I say to our executive board every time we meet, We're going to cover a lot of serious stuff, but can we smile and have a good time along the way? Because ultimately, we want to do things with a bunch of people that we like and resonate with. But also, we've got to decide where that time is spent because it is easy just to do everything and actually not much of impact. Whereas the reality is, as you scale, as you say, there are so many different things that are going to come in at different points. But yeah, I think that those are some interesting things that you covered there, Carolyn. So I'm looking forward to stepping back and going... Hmm. How well are we going to do these things when we go through a big doubling size over the next couple of years? So that's going to be good to look at. And and, and something for any aspiring CEO or not aspiring CEO who ends up in the job, as we discussed earlier. Have there been any surprises in uh, in the last 12 months about the job that you weren't expecting?
1: You know, the biggest adjustment I've had to make and I'm still making is the realization that there's no one else sitting in exactly my seat who has the perspective that I have. Taking this bird's eye view and looking across everything that's happening across the company. And it's so energizing to me to think about how all these pieces are fitting together and it's so clear in my mind. And yet figuring out the right way to radically simplify the story in a way that's digestible and can land at you know all levels and all roles across the company is, is an area that I'm still really working on and I believe in understanding the details where it matters. And I also am continuing to work to push myself to figure out how much detail matters for each different audience that we need to, you know, we need to engage. That should
0: be, that should be the intro to your book that you write one day, Carolyn, because I think that was absolutely on point in relation to that role and the uniqueness of it. And as I say, that book by the McKinsey have just released. I, I'm certain that you would enjoy that because they kind of looked at the habits of the top 500 CEOs in their jobs and like, you know, mapped out all the data and share it all in bits and pieces. And I think. The way that you summarised that was absolutely, um, yeah, very, 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 very astute indeed. Um, right, we've got to the end of the conversation, much to my regret, Carolyn, because I've enjoyed every single minute of it. It's been awesome. A book or a movie, any of those that you've read over the years that just stand out to you most as the most impactful.
1: Yes, let's see. I'm one of those people who has trouble picking favourites from favourites. <laughs> if you ask me next week, I'll probably pick something different. Uh,
0: yeah, me too. But
1: the one that's. Uh, the one that's top of mind we've been talking about on my leadership team a lot is a book called The Advantage um, by Lencioni. It came out like 10 years ago or so, but he he really gives an incredible view. And maybe this is similar to the McKinsey uh, book you mentioned around how to think about culture and organizational health as a competitive advantage. And, you know, thinking about how to build a leadership team, create clarity, over-communicate it. As I said, big learning for me. I need to like uh, over communicate and then reinforce. And then what are the feedback loops that drive that? And in particular, he, he talks about the concept of a first team, which is, you know, as a senior leader in an organization, your first team is actually the leadership team driving the organization, not the team that you lead personally, that you manage. Because ultimately, the, the thing that it drives our success is how we come together to ensure that the, the work we're doing is integrated and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts.
0: Love it. And I think picking that methodology of something that you're going to collectively get behind is important because I, I'm, not, I'm like you, have always got three or four books on the go from listening to them to reading them. And I think it's quite easy just to go a bit about it in a scattergun approach where the reality is picking something and like, right, let's do this well. Um, my executive coach he says that's the biggest, most impactful thing that a leader can do. There's a number of methodologies, pick one, go after it and do it well. and I think um, that, that, you know it's gonna be part of the really interesting journey for me over the next uh, the next few months and beyond. but uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing your journey. And your leadership learns with us today. I'm sure there's lots that's going to resonate with listeners and Saint been myself um, and they'll be taking away lots of valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give a five star rating and share with others in your network. Carolyn, thanks so much once again. have a great rest of your day. Thank you
1: so much. this was a lot of fun.